Hello and welcome to the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. Here we are once again downtown Seattle in the beautiful Hotel Andra, enjoying life at 4th of Virginia, getting ready for a big show. Our good friend Terry Rotero is still, and I say still, this is his third week uh, away in France on sort of a vacation. He's going to see his mom and his uh, on the front side, his mom on the back side, and then in between he's uh, floating down the Rhone River with a, a bunch of folks on a barge, uh, going market shopping and and uh, next year, you know, he's going to be doing more of these. So if you ever want to get involved with that, uh, we can get you the information if you just, what, email us at yes. hotstovesociety.com, right? I'm going to give him Terry's info. <laughs> okay, yeah, don't, you, don't, you don't want the emails? <laughs> We're ha- uh, very happy to be joined today by my business partner and friend, Eric Tanaka. Welcome, E.T. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This is, uh, you've been on the show before, but you've never really hosted the show before. No. So you have to follow in the very large shoes of uh, Loretta Douglas uh, <laughs> two weeks ago. And then Jackie, uh, last week, took on Terry's Terry's job since Seems he like is... we have a big budget for this uh, yeah. step in. <laughs> since he is yes, AWOL. <laughs> you know, we do our show right here at the Hot Stove Society Cooking School, where we have classes for the public, which we post on our website. And then also, if you're a business or or something you want to do a team builder or a wedding reception. What am I doing? I'm doing like a WPO event here uh, in a couple of weeks. The Young Presidents. Young, yeah, they're not so young, turns out. <laughs> They've been Young Presidents for like 25 years. I thought they kicked you out when you turned 40. That's the OPO, the Old <laughs> Presidents. Um, I was never invited because I never made enough money, but I'm not bitter. If you want to go, if you want to come here and have a delicious hot Dahlia Bakery breakfast sandwich, with a hot cup of coffee right here during our show. You can go to Hot Stove and get a ticket. We've got a big show today. Uh, we have Danica Noble here. We're going to get caught up on Ukraine. You know, about uh, 110 days ago, we did a couple of fundraisers here at the Hot Stove to help with the growing, what is, what's the word I want, immigration crisis or refugee crisis uh, that was happening in Ukraine. Think where we are today. It is so much worse. At that yeah. time, I think there were only a million or a million and a half people Refugees, now there's five or six million. I think it's even more than that. Yeah, refugees. we'll find out. So we're going to find out later from Danica. She uh, she uh, worked there for a while and is now going to give us a little bit of an update. Sophie Minchili is going to then take us off the uh, horrors of Ukraine and into the lovely life of La Dolce Vita in, uh, in Italy, which is really the life of doing nothing. The sweetness. The sweetness. Relaxation and not feeling guilty about it. Those are the silky tones of Pamela Hinckley, our producer. Does these show sheets that I'm reading right now. Uh, E.T.'s food journey and the culinary passions. And they, you know, E.T., you are the most consistently consistent. What's going to happen here? <laughs> you're, you're, I'm at you're the, the edge most of my consistent, uh, passionate culinary person in our company, I think. You love reading about what's going on in New York, L.A. You're from L.A., uh, it's just fun to uh, read your passions uh, daily that you send your email missives out. Yeah, I, I enjoy it. It's uh, With the Internet, it's so much easier now. I know. You don't even have to go. <laughs> you don't even have to go. I mean, I used to have to go when I went to a city. I'd go to seven restaurants in a night just to try and get caught up on all the new stuff. Now you just read their menus online. And it's, and so we're going to find out about E.T.'s food journey. Big bacon decisions for our upcoming tasting. What What tasting? On Father's Day, we're bringing back a version of Baconopolis uh-huh. where you... We're going to choose six bacons and have them naked and then in a dish. 
But as uh, Annie and I have been doing the research, there's a lot of expensive options out there, and I want your advice on which dish it's worth spending the money on the higher-end ones for, or do we just put Hempler's and Bavarian in everything? <laughs> well, Bavarian's out of business from the bacon side of things. They're still making sausages, but their bacon business is gone. I can't when Alberto it. took them over, yeah. no more yeah. bacon. No more bacon. No more bacon. I do have two pounds of that good, smoky, salty bacon from uh, the place where I got the ham in, in the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. Oh, can we Country. buy them from you? Yeah, Benton Country ham. I had one the other day. They are salty, and they are smoky. The, the ham was super salty. That's why I loved it. Yeah, it was it's something else. Burning questions from you, our fabulous listeners, and our own Princess Diana, who's a sales lead here, is also of Filipino descent and is going to talk about the new Kamayan feast, not the new, but the foods that she's going to experience during the Kamayan feast. Looking forward to that. Taste of the week. E.T., I'm going to start on this because, oddly enough, it's fresh on my mind. I just took a two-day golf trip into eastern Oregon, and we were on a 150,000-acre ranch that has a couple of, couple of golf courses, barely, and, uh, you know, a lodge and everything. But the, the ranch has 7,000 head of goat, 5,000 head of cattle, but they seem to be harvesting goat right now. I had goat at every meal for two straight days. So breakfast, lunch, wow. dinner for two straight days. I had goat meatballs, goat kebabs, goat uh, chops, you know, like lamb chops with goat chops. I had goat um, burritos, wraps. I had goat everything because that's what <laughs> they only serve one thing there, and that was goat. Well, I'm glad we had that at our manager I know. We just, yeah, <laughs> we just had it at the manager uh, uh, chef plant. Uh, oh, what, two weeks ago out at the weeks, farm. Yeah. So we had a goat on the rotisserie. So I'm goaded up, and I don't understand why we don't eat more goat. I agree. I love it. Yeah, it's it's so similar to lamb. It just doesn't make sense. Do you have a taste of the week? Have- I do. Uh, King Tut Restaurant on Aurora, about 135th. Uh, they do this uh, raised lamb shank. It is amazing. And it's just a mother and her daughter. Uh, in this little strip mall on uh, Aurora. But uh, I think they used to be up in Linwood and then got fancy and moved to Aurora. So <laughs> <laughs> so when you say 135th in Aurora, um, I'm, I'm thinking car toys at 130th in Aurora. I think that's further up. That's like 142nd, 143rd. Uh-huh. So it's, uh, it's, it's right by that old Sands Club. Uh, oh, yeah, on that side of the street? On that side of the street, Okay. Yeah. And then uh, I think uh, European Foods is there, mm-hmm. and there's uh, also a little like Chinese uh, grilled meat stick place there. European Foods is where we got a lot of the stuff for our Ukrainian benefits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's that little mi- mini mall, and there's, I think, uh, Social Security's there as well. So, Lamb Shank, anything else that was there that was uh, new to you? Uh, you know what? I only ate that, and I devoured it, and it was delicious. What was so good about it? <laughs> uh, it was perfectly cooked. It just... So fall off the bone. And, and not too overcook, because sometimes you co- overcook and it just That's gets mushy. It's yeah. just perfectly intact, but soft at the same time. Uh, Tomato-y and, and, or, or brothy? Uh, Tomato-y, brothy, but spicy too. Not spicy hot, but just a lot of different spices. And it's uh, Middle Eastern, so it's and really so, it was And really so it's neat. called, once again? King Tut. Which you would think would be an Egyptian restaurant. Yeah, no, it was not Egyptian. <laughs> Can't wait. Can't wait to check it out. You know, I have my favorite across the street, just up to 147th in Aurora, is the Royal Dumpling House. Yeah. I've been eating there quite a bit. The House Chow Mein Add Broccoli. That's my dish there, like anyone cares. Okay, Danica Noble's here, uh, happens to be married to E.T., and is going to talk about and give us an update on what's going on 
uh, with Ukraine and the refugee crisis and all the foods that are that are being done by Chef Jose Andres up there at the World Central Kitchen. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And we're back. It's the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo. We're so happy to be here. Happy to share two hours a week with you. It's uh, always fun and exciting. My favorite two hours of the week. Uh, Right here in the studio, uh, as I told you earlier, Chef Terry is out on the the river, the Rhone River somewhere. Uh, So E.T. is our co-host today, my partner, Eric Tanaka, and his wife, Danica, is here. Danica Noble. Uh, You know, Danica, when we first jumped into our refugee benefit here at the hot stove you were so instrumental in giving us a heads up on not only on what was going on over there but also the some of the cultural things you, that we chose to feature here and you did such a good job with that we we lined up some european producers of uh, ukrainian food to come bring and show off the, their goods and and who was the young lady that made those unbelievable cookies the beautiful Irina. Irina. Oh, my Can't God. Can't stop thinking about her <laughs> yeah. and the cookies. And the cookies. <laughs> she was awesome. But uh, where do we stand? I mean, I, I feel I feel sad when I turn on CNN and it's not on the front page anymore. And I know it should be. It can't be everything. But uh, where do we stand? So last week was 100 days since uh, the war in Ukraine began. And... Like you note, for some of us, and maybe in the media, there's some fatigue, but it's a real privilege to think about other things because the Ukrainians can't. Yeah. They are in a war and their country is under attack. Uh, so where we are is Ukraine is about the size of Texas. It has 43 million people um, is its population. Right now, about 6 million are refugees outside the country and inside the country, 6 million are displaced. The UN reported this week that two-thirds of all the children are displaced. So once five million more people out of that original population, that would be half the population displaced or out of the country. Um, There are over 600,000 people without any electricity or power. They don't have water in lots of places. And so uh, the situation is, is pretty tough. There's been enormous support um, from the world, and it's such a great opportunity to get here and uh, talk about it a little more and bring our focus there. So thanks for this opportunity. Absolutely. Well, you know, the World Central Kitchen is near and dear. Uh, your husband and I both know Jose Andres and what he's doing with that. And uh, I have a couple of friends that just came back from uh, the Romanian-Ukraine border that you helped kind of hook up with some guides and and to set up a little uh, small nursery, pantry thing for kids right there at the border you know free shoes free meals uh what are we finding if we want to get involved again with the world central kitchen or what what's the most effective way have you found if you've heard from your friends over there to help out well i'll start with world central kitchen because it is such a tremendous effort and so admirable when world central kitchen was there within the week on the border uh, after the invasion, and they started by doing a few thousand meals a day. They're up to one million meals a day in and around Ukraine. That's not even all of World Central Kitchen's um, work that they're doing around the world. 
So it's pretty incredible. Uh, I listened to some firsthand interviews with folks who were both volunteering with World Central Kitchen and some of the uh, refugees who were coming over the pedestrian border crossing. And they would say the people they would see would often be women with small children or elderly people. And they had been walking and not had a proper meal in most cases for five or six days. So the first people they see when they cross the border is World Central Kitchen. And they have been giving them these giant oversized sandwiches. Uh, That's something that's portable. And it's also maybe not that easy to eat a ton, right, if you haven't eaten in a long time. So they give them this and they can take that back to wherever they'll they're going to settle for the night, and then the next day they start getting hot meals. So it's a really incredible organization. And ways to work with World Central Kitchen are certainly to donate money, and they appreciate that. Um, But it is largely a volunteer organization, and so they're taking volunteers, and you don't have to be a chef uh, because a lot of it is assembling sandwiches, and we can all probably do that. Uh, So you apply on World Central Kitchen's website, Uh, You choose the days and the location. You're in charge of your own logistics, getting there and finding a place to stay. Uh, But they love help from everyone, and they've got just an incredible, diverse uh, array of folks who are going over there to volunteer several times in a row. And as you might imagine, everyone who does it finds it incredibly satisfying and and worthwhile. So that's that's one way to, to get involved, specific to World Central Kitchen. If you're not going to plan to go on a trip... To Europe, um, there are a few Ukrainian-based nonprofits. Uh, one is called Razon, which means together in Ukrainian. That's run by Ukrainians. It's in Ukraine. There's one called Voices for Children. That's another Ukrainian-based organization, and it is all about getting psychological and art therapy for children who are experiencing the trauma of war. So I think those are, are two good ones if you feel like giving some money. And then we actually have a lot of local opportunities, too. So tomorrow night at, let's take this back to Aurora, 185th in Aurora, at the ice skating rink, uh, a former world championship ice skater from Ukraine is doing an ice skating show. And it's $10, and all the funding is going to go to hospitals in Odessa. So that's one for Saturday. There's a virtual 5K or 10K put on by a Ukrainian Students Association. Uh, Eric and I, our oldest son and I, are going to do this virtual run. Wait, I am not running. Right. (laughs) That's definitely true. Um, And that one is going to give money to maternity hospitals throughout Ukraine. And then um, next Sunday at the Egyptian Theater in downtown Seattle, there's going to be a showing of the award-winning film Winter on Fire. And this is about the Ukrainians who stood up and brought around the revolution of dignity in 2014, and it gives really good insight to the Ukrainians. And that uh, fundraiser is going to raise money for the Ukrainian Association of Washington, Seattle home organization that's quite old. Um, They've been organizing lots of rallies, and they are filling their second Boeing 747 with supplies to send medical supplies to Ukraine. So really great organization. Really great. That's so, uh, and I know Brandy is uh, jumping in with her War Child uh, nonprofit mm-hmm. foundation. Have, do you know much about that? No, I don't know okay. who, how she's funneling the funds. So, Brandy Carlisle has um, a couple of nonprofits, but the War Child is one to help kids ravaged by war. So, it's uh, when my friends came back from Ro- Romania, Jamie and Sue, uh, they were just trauma you know traumatized in their own way in a first world way compared to what everyone else is going through but at the same time they felt so good they're going 
back now uh, in one month from now to relook at their orphanage that they kind of put together and went to, you know, the Ikea to, you know, furniture eyes and, you know, all that. They did all that stuff, brought carloads of food to the train station every day because these people are literally getting off the train. Some of these older Ukrainian women are in these crocheted slippers that they've been walking in for 10 days straight on the road for miles and miles, right? And so their feet are blistered and bare, and so fresh shoes at the border, and, you know, it's just, uh, and meals. And they were most impressed with World Central Kitchen. You walk right out, you know, get off the train, and you have this protein-rich wrap that they make. They have a recipe for it, and it's just handing out thousands and thousands every day. Yeah, no, it's it's amazing. Jose is amazing. Yeah. Truly amazing. Really proud of the work that he's done and, and all that sort of thing. Anything else that people can do for Ukraine that in your world that you're hearing? Because you have, you have friends on the ground over there having worked there for, what, six months or so? Yeah, I do have friends, and uh, they have told me, for instance, that I mentioned that backpacks for kids, that kids are really enjoying those, and then everybody uh, is feeling the love from Jose Andreas, who is there himself. Follow him on Twitter if you can. Like He's just inside Ukraine. He's on the border. He's not in a corporate office anywhere uh-huh good for him that He's, was a wonderful list danica there's a lot of inspiration in your suggestions thank you i agree totally what a transition we go from the, the devastation of ukraine and actually some of the positive sides of the ukraine to the sweetness of doing nothing or uh, as the book's italian title is dolce far niente uh, Sophie Mincelli is uh, going to get on the phone with us from Italy directly to talk about her book, The Sweetness of Doing Nothing, when we come back here at the Hyro Radio Hot Stove Society Show 97.3 FM. We are back in the Hot Stove Society kitchen on Cairo Radio. Woo-hoo! It's been uh, an eventful uh first hour already and now we're going to head all the way to italy i'm not sure what part of italy we're in but we're going to find out sophie mincelli is here she is uh, going to talk about her book just released in the u.s uh, the sweetness of doing nothing live life the italian way with dolce far niente and uh, sophie welcome to our show and tell us uh, tell us a little bit about you uh, your inspiration which i think is your mother if i'm not mistaken and uh, and the, the thought behind this book Thank you so much for having me. So yeah, my name is Sophie Minkili. Everyone gets that wrong, but it's a difficult name. And uh, I am half American and half Italian. So yeah, I work with my mom, who's American. And we lead food tours in Rome, but also all over Italy. So that's really fun. I love my job. And I am based in Rome, Italy. And I'm actually in the countryside now, in the beautiful region of Umbria, which is right next to Tuscany. So if you haven't been, you should go. It's amazing. And my book, yeah, it just came out in the U.S. It was supposed to come out in 2020, but COVID got in the way. And so I'm very excited for my first baby, my first book. So nice. And I I read that you spend, uh, well, many Romans spend three months of their life up in Umbria and in the countryside. Especially if you come to Rome during the month of August, everything will be closed, restaurants, offices, shops, because people just take the whole month off to go to the countryside or to the beach. Italians love the beach. Tell us a little bit about the book and what we can do as um, nose-to-the-grindstone uh, type people <laughs> uh, and how we can learn how to uh, live a little dolce far niente. 
So dolce far niente literally translates to the sweetness of doing nothing. And in my book, I talk about the lifestyle that Italians live. And it's not like we're sitting around doing nothing. I think we just figured out a way to really balance work life and just living life and enjoying it. And in order to be more productive and work better, you definitely need some downtime. And I think in today's society, we're always pressured to rush and fill out our lists and work more and produce more. But we need to sort of go back, think of maybe how our grandparents were living and sort of learn to slow down a little. And just like I was saying, Italians take the whole month of August off to sort of recharge and rest. So they work better in September. So I think we really need to let go of that sense of guilt that we often associate to downtime and just live life, live it like we want to live it. And um, yeah, in my book, <clears throat> there's various examples of how you can incorporate certain aspects of the Italian life into your life. And it's divided in three main chapters. Food, which is the biggest one, of course. <laughs> Food is like a religion in Italy. Then there's family and friends and leisure. So I think it's about taking baby steps and slowly incorporating different routines into your life. My favorite way to start is uh, what you say, uh, how, do, how can I incorporate some of these concepts into my life? Start yeah. with an aperitivo. And I love that because it gets you in the mood to follow through on some of the other relaxation ideas. Yes, aperitivo is probably one of my favorite things to do every day. After napping, I always nap. But aperitivo is what? what? <laughs> I used to nap yes, all the time before I had like, five kids. <laughs> napping is the most important thing. I love it. Um, even a short power nap, like 15 minutes, 20 minutes. But aperitivo is usually when we get together with our friends or family after work and have a drink and some snacks before dinner. And it's a way sort of to talk about the day, relax. And also having a drink before dinner gets you hungry for dinner, so you'll be hungry for dinner. So that's always good. <laughs> How many kids do you have, Sophie? <laughs> Zero. Maybe yeah. that's why I'm napping. <laughs> a, that, I was just going to say, there's a napping technique right there. <laughs> <laughs> Nap with your kids. <laughs> what is the what is your favorite aperitif? Um, a Bianco vermouth or sparkling wine? So I like... <laughs> I, I, I really like wine, and natural wines have become a huge thing here. But for the classic Italian cocktails, I like Negroni, which um, is quite strong, but it's very bitter in taste. And they say the bitterness uh, gets you hungry. It gets you going ready for dinner. And if you want something lighter, there's a Aperol Spritz, which is another popular drink, and that's actually on the cover of my book. So that's another favorite. So another thing you tell people to do is uh, learn an Italian card game. Take a break. And I think the taking a break thing is something that Americans um, don't do very well. I think that we always want to power through uh, taking a break. Uh, the other thing is, you know, do some cooking. And you also, you, you talk about the Italian kitchen being constantly kind of uh, the pantry being full because it's something that you think about as an Italian of, of larding the pantry. A full pantry is always great. And also, a lot of people say, oh, I don't have time to cook a home-cooked meal. But I'm just thinking, like, today, I had a food tour in the morning with some clients, and then I got home, and I only had half an hour to eat lunch. And I made a beautiful plate of pasta with zucchini because I had pasta in my pantry. I had delicious olive oil and zucchini in the fridge. I had two zucchini. 
And it took me exactly like eight minutes to make this pasta. Mm-hmm. And it's just about being organized and really not thinking of cooking as some time-consuming, difficult thing. It's, it's easy and it can be fun and delicious. I lived in uh, Italy in 92 for a year. And what, what I found uh, is that meals were immutable there. Like you planned around meals. You didn't you know, plan your activities and then plan your meals. Like everything was based on when you, what you were going to eat and when you were going to eat. And, and that was the first thing that they set when they were in Italy when I was in there. And, and I appreciated yeah. that because, the, the, you know, culture, as we talk about, food is the first thing. That was definitely the first thing they were talking about. Nobody forgets to eat lunch there. Nobody. <laughs> and, and, you know, we had a little glass it's of wine. True. Food is central here. Well, that uh, the other thing that always amazed us when we travel through Italy is that food is always fantastic. It's often homegrown. And um, when people come out of these old stone houses, they just, like, you, you keep expecting some... Uh, I don't know how to say it, but, you know, a senior woman to come out kind of in a house dressed. And here comes these, you know, men and women come out. Uh, the gates open. All of a sudden from the courtyard, they come out in their Lamborghini and they're in Armani suits. And it's like this is the funniest transition out of these old cobblestone buildings into this <laughs> modern fashion. Yes, it's true. Uh, definitely yeah, in food Piedmont, is like Barolo. a religion here. We literally it's all we talk about every day all day and like sunday lunches are a huge thing but even our lunch break uh during the work week is people usually take at least an hour lunch break and they actually sit down either at a coffee bar at a restaurant they would never eat in front of their computer screen that you'll never see happen in italy it's funny that's how i spend 99 percent of my meals I, I liked your approach to cooking with the seasons as a way to be more mindful of slowing down and noticing what was going on in the natural world. And I want to hear more about that dish, the vignarola. Yes, so that's a spring dish, and it's a mix of all the spring vegetables, which we patiently wait for all year. So asparagus, artichoke, fava beans, and peas. And they're all cooked together with fresh onions and mint, and it is so good. <laughs> and unfortunately, there's no longer spring vegetables available in Italy. We're eating the very last artichokes of the season. But now there's beautiful summer vegetables to look forward to. So tomatoes, cucumbers, eggplants. So we're starting to eat those. Summer, Lovely. summer's Lovely. upon us. <laughs> I know. Sad but true. In Seattle, summer has, or spring hasn't even really happened yet. Although yesterday's rain felt oh. very, very warm compared yeah. to the- <laughs> Uh, Sophie, anything else you want to tell us? Uh, we only have a minute left about your book. Um, no, my book is available on Amazon and bookstores as well. And if your local bookstore doesn't carry it, you can always ask them to order a few copies for you, and they'll be happy to order it for you. I, th- I think it's a terrific way to kind of uh, read this before you're heading over the pond and uh, kind of set up your, your vacation around some of these ideas of uh, uh, living life, la dolce vita, the sweet life. <laughs> yes. All right. The sweetness of doing nothing. Live life the Italian way with Dolce Farniente. Thank you, Sophie. Thank you for having me. All right. Ciao. Ciao. Bye-bye. How fun is that? Didn't that sound like a good way to spend this afternoon? <laughs> I'm going to start with a nap right after this. <laughs> I think we should go down on the on the deck at Seatown uh, and just go and just... have an aperitif. Well, first, we're going to sleep on the deck. We're going to take a nap. And then we're going to get up and we're going to have an aperitif. And so that we can in, uh, digest our dinner better. Yes. Perfect. Yes, please. Okay, fine. <laughs> 
All right. Uh, when we come back, we're going to learn a little bit more about my co-host today, Eric Tanaka, about his history, feeding his family, and current food passions. You just heard he has five children. Oh, my Only God. Only five. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. You're in the Hot Stove Society kitchen on Cairo Radio. It's Tom Douglas. And E.T. And E.T. Eric Tanaka, my partner today, filling in for Mr. Terry Rotro, the chef in the Chabot, who's floating down a river in France somewhere. Hopefully he's getting his favorite. He loves his mother's pot au feu. So hopefully he's getting a little version, a spring version of that on his way back. E.T., you've been uh, with our company for how many years now? Almost 30. Almost 30. And Yeah, and, and you uh, look like a spring chicken. <laughs> I feel like one. <laughs> and you uh, you became a partner about, I would say, 20 years ago or maybe even longer. Somewhere yeah. in there. Yeah, somewhere oh, in that area. So uh, we're thrilled to have you, and I've, I'm indebted to your, your knowledge and your passion. And I was talking about that uh, earlier. It was like uh, in the opening of the show how fun it is that you're so connected much more than I ever was. I would go out and go to other restaurants around the country when I traveled, but you're connected day in and day out with the food scene in other cities and making sure that we're staying hip and on it. and It's just the things that you love. So tell us a little bit about your food story, your food history, and then how you got to Seattle. Uh, you can leave your first wife out of it if you want. No, <laughs> you can't, though, because your two kids uh, from your first marriage are lovely children. They are great. They yeah. are great. Kids, yeah. uh, and of course you have three with Danica, and you've got a rich life. <laughs> uh, yeah, it feels like it sometimes. <laughs> Over rich, <laughs> uh, but you know, I think um, I, I think you and I share a lot of. I mean, we have different sensibilities and yeah. food and different things, but I think we both love to eat and we enjoy company, and I think that's the basis of what I got. How I got into this, it was I went to college. You know, I have a majored in economics and urban planning, and uh, I was trying to stay in school forever because I didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, and but, your parents were paying? Yeah, and they eventually kicked me out. I was going for an art minor or art history minor. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it is, I was piecing together, you know, something. Uh, but, you know, I was working for the city of Irvine in their urban planning department doing bike trails. The most miserable I've ever been in an office. It was just not my thing. Uh, and my mom was like, why don't you uh, apply for at a restaurant? Like, well, I've never worked in a restaurant. I just really love to eat. I wanted to go to cooking school out of high school, but my parents were like, no way. That's, that's not, you know, what you can do. You have to go to college. So I, they're paying, so I went. Uh, but I, I was miserable, so uh, my mom clipped me an ad. You know, she's a good mom. And said, here, this is a really good restaurant. You should go, you know, get a job there. I'm like, who's going to hire me? Like, I've really, literally never worked in a restaurant. Well, had you shown, like, did you always love to go to restaurants with your parents? Or yeah. why did you, yeah. yeah, I mean, I loved to eat. So then they were once again paying. So uh-huh. it was free and it was tasty. So I'd go. Uh, but I actually went and I got the job. Um, and I quit after a month. And this is a story for you. I quit He's after pointing to Julia in our audience, I think. Uh, I quit after a brunch because I broke the hollandaise eight times. <laughs> eight times. <laughs> Every cook was giving me a different way to fix it. <laughs> so I had eight different ways I tried it. So um, I quit after that, and I'm like, Chef, I'm terrible. I, can't, I don't want to bring the team down because what I discovered that I loved about cooking is that it's a team thing. I played sports all my life. 
Uh, and it's really a team. Like, you don't want to let the team down. Like, one weak, li- weak link in the team kind of uh, screws your service up. So uh, he was like, oh, don't worry. You'll be fine. And I was like, are you sure? And he's like, yeah, don't worry. You'll be fine. So it, that little boost of confidence, it, it actually did propel me. So I, I did find my rhythm there. And I never broke holidays after that. <laughs> and actually, I figured out my own way to, you know, fix it if it was broken. So uh, it's one of those things. I know you've been trying for 20 years, 30 years, however long on your steak Oscar. So I'm going to say keep at it because I think you're going to get it. Uh, and I'll send you my notes if you need them. Uh, so, yeah, so I started cooking uh, as at the bottom, as everybody should. I think it's in, indispensable to, A, just respecting uh, the ingredients and, and the culture within a restaurant. Uh, I think... You know, not to be generationally trite, but, you know, some younger generations just want to start at the top and, and uh, feel like they've done it all. But I think starting at the bottom is is really indispensable to figuring out how you want to be within a kitchen and really what excites you. So don't you think that kind of ha- that change kind of happened when, uh, you know, it used to be an apprentice system, mm-hmm. just like in plumbing or electrical or it was apprentice cooks uh, sort of, especially in Europe. And then it turned into people going to culinary school instead of getting that hands-on instruction and then coming out thinking that they needed a different level of work. I actually think it started with not Julia Child cooking shows, but glamorization of cooking and food. Working in a kitchen is gritty, but some of these kitchen shows kind of really made it seem glamorous. Yeah. And, uh, you know, some of that hubris of, of, you know, maybe older school generations of kitchens caught up. And, you know, there's a lot of different pieces coming down, you know, the pike of what's acceptable or not. Uh-huh. Uh, but, you know, as, as far as glossing over things. But I think it, just watching these chef documentaries, we are 450 miles outside, like picking lichen from a forest and then. You know, fermenting it, and you know, it just—it mm. seems so. Wow, <laughs> but you know, it, you're a long way from that when you're starting out in a kitchen. Yeah. Like it's—it's it's not that. So. All right. Um, yeah. So uh, actually, after I broke the hollandaise eight times, I actually progressed very rapidly because I practiced at home. I would cook for my parents. I would cook for anybody <laughs> who would eat the food, essentially. And because I was living with my parents because I was a poor cook, (laughs) graduated with two majors, but here I am. Um, So uh, actually, I was promoted to be a sous chef after six months and then uh, asked to move to New York to be a chef, uh, actually opening sous chef in New York. We were opening a restaurant there and I knew the guy that was the chef was going to quit. So I was a chef in New York after one year. Wow. At a a pretty, I mean, you were on... uh, Publishers Row, they're on 55th, right? Yeah, no, it yeah. was fancy. Like yeah. it was uh, basically all the publishing Pretty houses much in New every York. Every cookbook there. was coming off of that street. I cooked for Martha Stewart there. Oh. <laughs> uh, plain chicken breast, nothing. That was it. Uh, <laughs> but you know, it was it was fantastic. I mean, to be in New York as a young, I not I wouldn't even call myself a chef at that point. I was really well versed in the menu that we did at this one specific restaurant. Uh, I knew it back backwards and forwards. I was great at that. But, you know, it's interesting. We now try and provide so much more support for our uh, team. Like, I was just thrown into a lot of situations that nobody told me how to do, like hiring, firing, you know, 
Any, anything. <laughs> so yeah, because the chef job is only 25% cooking. Yeah. If that. Yeah. yeah. It's mostly managing a brigade. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think, uh, but I was really still self-motivated and a wine broker, an Italian wine broker asked if I wanted to go to Italy and I'm like, yeah. So he made a call, set me up. I was in Piedmont in Barolo, uh, cooked there for a year and then came back to New York uh, worked at the Gotham Bar and Grill, which at that time was uh, one of the top restaurants in New York, uh, and then segued out here and was on my way to San Francisco, but met Tom, and I feel like we hit it off. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And here we are 30 years later. Here we are. Well, I'm, I'm a big fan, Eric, as you know, and I've told you and uh, certainly told your wife, Danica, that um, I, we wouldn't be where we are without you. And when you and Pam were actually running our company, we were never better off, so... I agree. Yep. So, all right. Thank you for your story. And if you want to know more about ET, we'll try and have him on uh, to talk about that year in Italy and all the things that you do and um, you did in your life. Including like working. selfie, I did nap a lot in Italy. <laughs> <laughs> and ate After a lot of pasta. Lunch, we'd have a little glass of wine, some pasta. Then we'd go home for an hour to take a nap and then come back to work. Luxurious. All right. We still have another full hour of deliciousness coming at you right here from the Hot Stove Society Show. Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. Welcome back. It's hour number two of the Hot Stove Society Show. Chef Eric Tanaka sitting in with me uh, covering for that lazy son of a gun. Thierry Rotoro still on vacation in France. Napping. We're only jealous. Jesus, in a in a what do they call a lounge chair in in France? A laissez faire, <laughs> <laughs> a lounging down and floating down the Rhone River. Well, I, we hope he's having a blast. Honestly, so he deserves his time. Chef Tanaka, we have a whole bacon tasting coming up. I know that's right up your alley, although you're a cheeseburger man. I am a cheeseburger man, but uh, you actually got me a bacon sampler pack. Uh, and, yes, I did. Pamela, you were talking about the differences or just all these fancy bacons. Uh, I, they actually make a huge difference. It was actually amazing to me. Yeah. So we're going to talk about that later in the show. Uh we are also going to do our Food for Thought Tasty Trivia. Is making a return this week? It certainly is. Wow. I'm so excited about that since I got crushed last week. I'm going to take it out on you all. And then uh, we, uh, let's talk about Baconopolis later in the show. First, let's, uh, you have a couple of listener questions. Two listener questions. Uh, Sam Gordon is still remembering your beef stroganoff. I love that it's my beef stroganoff. Uh, that you made at Benjamin's, uh-huh. which you say um, you've got a modern a- adaptation now that you want to recommend to Sam because you can't remember what well, way you Sam, made it. Well, <laughs> Sam, that was 45 years ago. That was my first job in Seattle at the Bellevue Benjamin's, which was owned by uh, Mr. Weisfield of, of uh, I think, Weisfield Jeweler fame. Uh, anyway, yeah, I have no recollection other than we sauteed it, sauteed the meat, seared it, like we did. You know, the, very popular at that time were these saute houses like the 13 Coins, uh, Boondocks on Broadway. I mean, all these saute houses. And I really kind of take it back to San Francisco time. They were popular there. So, that, of course, then they became popular in Seattle. But just sauteing the meat, stirring in sour cream, stirring in the pasta, uh, and that was what I remember of stroganoff. To this day, I would probably do the same. I would saute the meat 
or stew the meat, depending on what cut you have. If you're doing like strips of beef tenderloin, you can just saute it and be done. If you have beef stew meat, you have to braise it. And then at the end, stirring in, uh, you know, with sautéed mushrooms, stirring in the sour cream, putting it over buttered noodles. Don't forget the butter, lots of buttered noodles. And fresh parsley on top, and that to me is beef stroganoff. Do you have any difference of opinion? Do you put any stock or any liquid? I don't remember at Benjamin's if I did or not, but I'm sure we probably did. So yeah. How would you do it now? Is that what you're thinking, Eric? That we? Would- I would add just a little bit, and I'd probably deglaze with a touch of of white wine, mm-hmm. oddly, mm-hmm. Uh, and then some herbs, like yeah. obviously whatever is good. But um, but thanks for making me remember that time of my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, and uh, Julia Graham is with us, and she has her great curiosity about steak Oscar, which I have never had, so you both can help her make it perfectly next time. Well, I'm going to leave this to you. I mean, at, at Benjamin's, we made steak or veal Oscar also, uh, and uh, we, we heard from Julia that she likes to put asparagus on hers and the crab, right? The king crab or Dungeness crab, your choice. Et, how would you go about like using a filet mignon, Oscar? Uh, pretty much saute house style. I'd saute that up, but as, as you saute the, the steak itself. Yeah, saute uh-huh. the steak itself. Uh, on a rare, medium rare, however you take your steak, uh, let that rest. Uh, but I think really what happens prior is kind of prepping the hollandaise. I think that was a bigger part. And of the asparagus it. and the king crab. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know, I think in a restaurant style, that would be prepped and ready to go, and you're just warming and topping. But the the hollandaise, so back to, you know, my illustrious history with that. You know, I think at home, it's probably just a two-yoke um, batch with maybe a half pound of butter. But you would warm that butter up, uh, and you'd have a double broiler. So you put those two yolks over a double broiler, uh, and you're going to mix those yolks up, and you're trying to just set them. You're not letting them curdle, so you're not overcooking them. And this is the hard part is it can't be too hot and it can't be too cold. If well, it gets I'm going to take cold, you back one second. Though. Yeah. I, when I was making a 40-egg batch, we would always add lemon juice and water, a little bit of water when we were cooking our eggs. Yeah, I did, that, uh, we, I did a lemon juice and a touch of champagne vinegar. Champagne vinegar, yeah, Tabasco. Cook that out. Yeah. And then uh, finish with the lemon just to season so you finish after you put the butter in? I would only put a little bit of, yeah, uh, after I put the butter. Uh, so you're not putting the whole load of lemon. You're, I see. You're finishing, so you're seasoning uh, that piece, because I think it should be really, really nice and bright. So you're finishing with that, just to make sure. Sometimes when you cook the lemon, to me, you're, you're cooking out uh, the citrus in that. So I love I like a real finish. lemony hollandaise. Yeah. So, so now we're back to a double boiler. We've got the bowl kind of over a simmering, not a not a heavy boil, a simmering water. Yeah, simmering. And water. you've got a whisk, mm-hmm. and you're just going to beat it up. What's your next question, Julia? Okay, we need to back up even before the hollandaise. Okay. <laughs> so you're saying have all the ingredients like the asparagus and the crab and everything already on the asparagus. So now. Because I fail at this favorite dish all the time. How much am I cooking the asparagus and how to do it? Okay. Stove, steam, what? Uh, it depends. I think a more modern piece might be to grill it now. Back in the day, it was probably uh, poached and or then steamed. Yeah. steamed. Okay. Uh, and I don't think they even blanched it. So dropping it in hot water, I don't think they did that. You would, and 
do that now just to hold the color. But uh, obviously, it comes back down to cold, so you're going to have to reheat that. But uh, what we would do probably is we'd have that steak, you know, cooked and resting. You would put that asparagus on a tray, and then when your hollandaise is all ready, you would drop that into the oven. Drop your, what in the oven? Your meat and your asparagus. Just to kind of rewarm it a bit. Now, do I have the asparagus on top of the yes. steak at this point? Yes. Well, no, no, no. The pieces. He's saying put the pieces okay. all on a tray, pop it in the oven to get it all back warm again. Except for the crab. No, you can put the crab in, too. Everything. Just, you're not cooking it. You're warming it now. Yeah, just warming it. Bring it up to temp. Uh, so you'd have that in the oven. You would bring that out when it's hot, maybe three minutes, two minutes. You know, like Tom said, you don't want to cook it. You'd have your plate out. You're going to put your steak. You're going to put your asparagus on top and then your uh, crab. On top of the asparagus. Yes. Yeah. And then you're just going to nape that with your beautiful, luxurious hollandaise. Okay. And then uh, maybe some chopped parsley. Can I ask one other little yes. question? Okay. Now, on the holidays, things are in the oven, mm-hmm. staying warm. Yeah, 150-degree oven. Just, you're just getting it Perfect. warmed up. Yeah. Okay. And now that's when I'm starting the holidays. Oh, no. No, you no, 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 Really, it's done. Before you even start cooking the steak, the first thing you do is you're going to make your holidays. Because you can hold it. You'll just hold it in a warm oh, bath over, of water. Over a warm bath of water. Okay. In the double... Okay. Yeah. So, okay, on, on the hollandaise, so now I've, I've got yeah, the eggs, the egg yolks, yolks in there. Lemon they're juice, in there. The, and vinegar, lemon juice that. And the melted butter. butter. One small ladle at a time. Just keep That's whisking key. until it brings tears to your eyes. And some people will <laughs> from clarify Borda that butter. From- <laughs> some people will clarify your butter. I don't do that. I'll just take okay. off the top. So just the clear stuff off the top. And as you add it in, it's going to thicken up. So, so what I'll I'm do whisking. is use the milk solids on the bottom to actually adjust how thick or thin you want your hollandaise. So I think it's better to have it thicker. As it heats, it's going to kind of melt down. Right. So if it's too thin, it's going to run off. All right, Julia, I have to cut you off because our, our time is up. <laughs> but thank you. That was a good question. And maybe we should do a whole segment on all the different things you can do with Oscar. Thank you. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Up next, it's a return of our Baconopolis here at the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo. What to do with all the different bacons in the world. 97.3 FM. Yes. All right. Here we go. We're back in the kitchen. It's Hot Stove Society Radio on Cairo. <laughs> And we're happy to be here. We've got a couple more segments to do today, including the return of Baconopolis. Pam, tell me about what's going on with Baconopolis. Well, on Father's Day, we're, we're scaling it down a little bit because we're doing it here at Hot Stove. It, we couldn't do such a grand thing as we used to do at the ballroom. Right. 350 but, people right. eating 12 kinds of bacon. But uh, we keeping the core concept, which is choosing six different bacons um, that you get to taste naked and then you get to taste them used in a dish Mm -hmm. so annie and i have been doing the research on the wild crazy diverse world of bacon out there to decide what to which ones to buy but i want to give you the list of the dishes that we chose so you guys can talk about what bacons you would recommend um and we are going to start with uh barbecue chicken bites that are wrapped in bacon then there is a cheddar and bacon corn pudding 
big fan of corn puddings. Uh, a spectacular bacon and cabbage stir fry. You know, I had that at the Royal Dumpling House. Uh, mm. They use pork belly. Uh, it was delicious. Yeah, I, I hadn't really thought cabbage. about doing that. Well, it's going to be incredible. And then, of course, a, a grits dish with a baked egg in it. And also, as a palate cleanser, a crispy bacon broccoli salad. So, Annie's first uh, research, and we thought, we thought of this one late. We've got to get Dusky's Bacon yeah. from Sonoma, don't you think? Yes. Um, Hempler's for a simpler one. To, and that's local. Uh, to have a local one. We were. She was looking at the Snake River American 100% Curabota Berkshire Hog Bacon. And there's a. So here's what I would say about that. Yes. Do you want this opinion now, or do you? Yeah, want to, yeah. Yeah. Let's. To me, some of those um, things like hog bacon, it's really not about, in my mind, the bacon itself, unless it tastes super porky. Maybe that's going to be the difference in that bacon. But it's really how it's cured and smoked is what's going to make all these very different. Because we're not really talking about bacons of the world where if you're in Ireland or in England, you get the, kind of the pork loin that's been cured and, and barely smoked. I mean, yeah. we're talking about traditional American-style strip bacon from the belly. Yes. On all of these, right? Yes. Okay. Although um, we are very enchanted with both a Texas wild boar mm-hmm. bacon because uh, the, this claim from Beck and Bulo is that their diet of nuts and tubers gives a really dramatic difference in the meat flavor. And um, Annie was looking at the duck char duck bacon from Moulard Ducks mm-hmm. in Missouri. Mm-hmm. Do you think that would be too strong a flavor? I, I don't think so. No, not, not even for a minute. No? No. When, uh, you, when, you, when they make these bacons, they're usually cured in salt and sugar and... Honestly, they all taste very similar. So it's a smoke level, and now it's going to taste a little bit different and be a little bit more meaty with the duck compared to, say, pork belly. You know, so that, that's the kind of difference you're going to notice. I think one of the things I found with the bacons that you got me, Tom, is that uh, with commercial bacon, the fat just renders completely out. With these fancier hogs, uh, the fat doesn't render. So there's a lot more. F- and it's not a fatty texture. It's actually a meaty. There was a really meaty texture to the fat because it doesn't render out in the same way. Yeah, the fat, the fat renders, but the structure, the cellulose of the fat stays in place. Yeah, right. So it was. So there's crunch there, but even though it's not one of the, the meat slice or the meat strip that you can see through a, a slice of bacon. Yeah, but it's still there and it's still crunchy and delicious. Yeah, and it carries a lot more flavor because the cures and smoke have penetrated, and that that was the biggest. I agree with Tom. The biggest part was smoke levels. Like some were so smoky. Uh, so I think that would be the first thing that I look, would look at is measuring out how much smoke you want in each dish. And uh, um, is it the cure technique that keeps it from rendering the fat as much? I'm a little confused. Well, I think Eric is saying it's the type of hog that they use, Okay. Uh, which I, I actually don't know scientifically anything about that. I'm going to bring a surprise bacon, though, because when I ordered my Benton Country ham, for that Mother's Day class that I was doing, yes, I ordered five pounds of their bacon, and I have two pounds left. The rest are right here. Yeah, <laughs> because my wife won't eat it; it's too smoky for her. It's like a double smoke. Yeah, she doesn't bacon. like a lot of smoke. No, 
So I uh, use it in my split pea soup. Yeah, it goes oh, a long perfect. way. It's really good because yeah. once again, that bacon, some of the, the lesser hogs, whatever, the bacon just kind of disappears. This mm-hmm. one it was very present. Now, when you're I making like. that in the soup, are you uh, cooking the bacon first or are you like chopping it up? Cooking it and then adding all your the rest of your ingredients. To uh, it. No, I'll uh, cook first and uh-huh. use the rendered fat then to just sweat out and do carrots or whatever veggies yeah. we have. Carrots and cauliflower usually. Yeah. Uh, onion, garlic, and then and with that, I actually had to add more fat because it didn't render that much fat. Usually with regular bacon, it just there's more than enough fat. You know, Pam, the key on something like that is to take that rendered fat and saute your croutons in it that you're going to put on top of your soup. Yeah. Yeah. One of, um, Annie and I were behind the calendar on this, but we thought about should we have made our own bacon, and I don't have experience with that. What is, have you, either of you made bacon? Oh, yeah, we used to make bacon at the palace. It doesn't take that long. You're just, you can either just straight salt cured or you can get some, uh, you know, curing salt. Throw that in there, so that that will preserve color. Or you can try celery salt in there too. Uh, it's a natural uh, process for as far as well, that's uh, where you get your gray corned beef and yeah. your gray bacon things like that. You like Pam? <laughs> natural. Well, you're such a natural head. It just depends on how thick your belly is because you're just trying. You're essentially just trying to cure it the whole way through. You don't get it cured through. You're going to have a band of brown in the middle and then pink. On the outside, which we've done. We've mastered that technique. <laughs> Maybe you'll help me get a belly ready. Yeah. That would be wonderful. Well, when, when is this event? The 19th. Of this month. Yeah. So, yeah, we have time. We do have time. Because yeah, that sure. would be pretty sexy if we had our own competing against these. Mm-hmm. The, the last one. That How do people buy a ticket to it? Hotstovesociety.com. Okay. Uh, there's a full-blood Wagyu. Bacon, $38 a pound. So a beef bacon. Yeah. I wonder if they're pulling this, that off the, the breastplate. You know, how, you know how that plate is about 50% fat on a I, steer? We took some samples. Yeah. It was crazy. Wait, samples of what? Tell me. Uh, that Off that plate. It's called the plate cut. Short plate. And it's just this thin piece of uh, meat, but it's really marbled mm-hmm. it's not layered like a pork belly but it's just m- modeled with fat but it it would cook up similar in that way yeah it was delicious sounds oh. very exotic it well is. we're not going to do that that was that was a little <laughs> out there so hotstovesociety.com is the uh, is where to go for baconopolis we'd love to see you come down and uh, hang with us for a couple hours and eat some bacon and are we going to have a winner I mean, at the Baconopolis, we always had a winner of the which yep. the, the fan favorite of fan all favorite. the different bacons. And we're calling it Your Bacon Me Crazy. Your Bacon Me Crazy. <laughs> wow, you We've guys updated it. Seriously, seriously original. <laughs> all right, I'm looking forward to that. We'll get that pork belly uh, today. I'll try and go get one. And oh, that'd be fabulous. Started. All right, next up, it's time for Camayon, Filipino Feast from Diane Cruz. We're... When we come back at the Hot Stove Society radio show, Cairo. Yeah. We're back. It's the Hot Stove Society kitchen show on Cairo Radio. And I'm joined by two of my workmates here at the Hot Stove, Diane Cruz and Annie Elmore. Uh, Both um, 
from Asia, I will say, with Asian background, but also, uh, Diane, you are more Filipino, and Annie, you're more Cambodian. Is that yeah. right? Uh, yeah, Vietnamese Cambodian. Vietnamese Cambodian. Uh, but let's talk. It's time for the Filipino tradition known as Kamayan, and uh, it stands for eating and feasting with your hands, which is always a good thing in my book. <laughs> Can you tell us about the tradition and about how you grew up with it and what you look forward to every year for this? Um, what I look forward to every year would probably be all the food on the table. So there's a lot of rice, there's a lot of meat, and sometimes... Literally on the table. It's actually on a whole banana leaf, oh, okay. and then there's rice, and then there's like um, there's vegetables, there's fish, and then if you're lucky and you're feeling extra festive, there's like a whole pork that's fried right in the middle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And what do you know about this, Miss Elmore? Um, well, I came across an article a long time ago, probably four years ago, and I kept it in my um, you know, notebook for the longest time. And I... I mean, the picture looks amazing because you got the sausage, you got the guinea pig, you got fried fish, you got a bunch of vegetables. It's like, this is something I want to eat. And I love Filipino food. Uh, the hardest part is like, there's not a lot of restaurants around here. and You have to make it at home or you have to know friends who can make it. Um, so I did, I did it once. Actually, I did it twice at home. My niece's... Uh, boyfriend is filipino so for his birthday i made it for him a couple years ago and i kind of came up with my own thing like instead of a whole pick i did a pork belly with a skin on and um i did you know like um fish fillet instead of a whole fish because it's kind of hard to fry whole fish at home I did go get Laganisa, but I didn't make it myself. And, you know, like a bunch of vegetables and stuff like that. And so when Diane came on, she wanted to do it last year in November. But we were so busy with, um, you know, holiday parties Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So we couldn't do it. Uh, We wanted to do then is to, um, you know, remember her mom and her dad. But we couldn't do it. So we trying to do it now. Um, just, you know, why we're not really busy with holiday parties. Yeah. It's nice to have uh, a remembrance of your parents for Father's Day. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Very excited. So what part of it are you most looking forward to? This is a large feast. Did you have a favorite taste in that feast? Yes. Actually, I really like the pork lumpia. Um, It means, the dish specifically means a lot to me. As you know, I'm not, like, the most the best cook out there i don't i'm i don't get my hands too dirty in the kitchen but i have a fond memory when i was young um i would help my mom make and roll the pork lumpia so i mean i don't remember how to do it but it's just one of the things i remember from my childhood so it sticks a lot to me and then would you deep fry in your home kitchen and what kind of sauce would you make for um for we would deep fry them in our kitchen yeah and then for the sauce we would either use sweet and sour or we use um banana ketchup that's very popular uh-huh what would uh, did you make your lumpia how did you make them uh i did make my lumpia um it's very similar to you know vietnamese egg rolls anyway it's like really? pork yes well i think of vietnamese egg rolls being more kind of noodle based with some meat in it whereas lumpia 
It almost feels like a pork sausage in the middle. Well, uh, yeah, it's still pork based. There's still some sort of vegetable in there. There's still fish sauce. There's still onion and garlic. But you know, again, you were right. With us, we add. What did you um, say? Oh my god! This is recorded. I don't have to say it again. Okay, keep going. Um, but yes, we do use some sort of noodles, like um, the saifan noodles, which is a mung bean noodles. Um, but for you know uh, Filipino, they don't really use that. But they use more vegetables in there as a filler, so like cabbage, carrots, uh, onion, and those kind of things. Do the Filipinos uh, have any other noodle? What's the glassy noodle dish that is so popular? Um, pancit? Yeah, pancit. pancit. Yeah. Is that the big, is that really the only big noodle dish in your culture? Um, they, is, we have like um, something similar called the palabok, which is also glass noodles. Um, but it's more on the fishier side. Like it, they use um, shrimp paste with it. I see. That's something that sounds that, good. Yeah, it does sound good. <laughs> shrimp paste is one of those things that never caught on in the States Yeah, as much. I know. Uh, and it's, it's such great, an unctuous Great, ingredient. unique yeah. flavor. And Annie, you are sending Diane on a mission today <laughs> to, to what's the name of the store with the special ingredients where you're going? It's called Seafood City Supermarket. It's located in South Center, so... It has a lot of Filipino uh, ingredients there. Like they make that. Apparently, they have the best Lagunisa in the city. Really? Yes. And of course, that's what we're going after. Yes. (laughs) So like my niece, uh, who's her boyfriend's family lives in Snoqualmie. So every time they go visit his family, she would have to go there and buy like, I don't know, two dozens of Lagunisas to bring to them. Mm Mm-hmm. And they make it fresh there themselves, because almost always you see it kind of in the freezer yeah. Or, yeah. I'm very excited about how you're going to do the colors in the sweet, pickled, multicolor cauliflower. Uh, well, I'm going to get purple cauliflower, orange cauliflower, and white. Mix it all together. Real colors. Yes, real colors. <laughs> 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 do you think I was going to dye that? Yes, yes. That's and the... Uh, Mango, watermelon, and watermelon radish salad. Yeah, I felt bad that there's no really salad on that dish, so I kind of channel you to put a salad on there. And you love radishes, and I thought the color of the watermelon radish looked really beautiful on that whole dish. You know, Uh, and then, of course, with the mango, sweet and sour in there. So you have the ube-inspired dessert. Did you always love sweet potatoes? Oh, see, that's the thing. It's not a sweet potato. It's not sweet. I thought ube was sweet potato. It's a purple yam, but it's oh, okay. um, it's different. Yeah. Take him to school, Diane. Yeah. You tell him. Yeah. <laughs> so was that something you grew up with also? Yes. So we'd have them in different desserts. Um, we have them in this particular one. It's called Halo Halo. It's like a Filipino shaved ice. We would put <gasps> jam in there. Taro and um, sometimes ube ice cream. Have you decided what you're going to do yet with the yes. ube? Yes, ube okay. cheesecake. <gasps> oh. <laughs> and yes. when you Very get the ube now, because yams are hard to find. I mean, real yams are hard to find. Well, we're not, are you using a powder? Uh, well, we're using two types of things. We're buying ube uh, jam, which you can buy in a jar. And then we're also using ube extract for more of the flavor to bring out. Yeah, so we're, we're doing... Two ways. 
I saw an ube gin or an ube rum recently that was oh, just really? that gorgeous purple yeah. color. Yeah, the color is amazing. Uh, so sometimes you see people use the extract, but then they use the food coloring to bring it out that purple color, but it's not really, you know, there's no real ube in there. And let's go back. Whenever I've had uh, sugar cane, we only have a minute, by the way. Whenever I've had sugar cane, it's always had like a shrimp paste or something wrapped around it mm-hmm. and then broiled. But on this menu, it just says sugar cane. So uh, is it something that's, uh, it's a sugar cane, vinegar, garlic, chili sauce. Oh, that's the, the, the vinegar. Of, I, I yeah. Because Filipino, they, they have this vinegar that made from real sugar cane. So uh-huh. it's a little bit sweeter right. than the normal vinegar that you usually get. I see. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing your feast that's coming up. When is that happening? 18th, Saturday the 18th. The day before the bacon. Wow, oh, it's going to be a busy weekend there's around some, here. I know. Let's there's go. some good eating coming up. Exactly. Excited. Uh, All right, when we come back, it's time to finish our show and wrap it up with Food for Thought Tasty Trivia, for which I fully plan on crushing my contestants. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. It's time for Food for Thought Tasty Trivia, brought to you by Rub with Love Spice Rubs. We hope to inspire your creativity with our bountiful array of spice rubs, each one named for a specific use, but of course, you can use them on anything that you desire. Don't hold back. Pork rub is terrific on white fish, for example. Be sure to stock up with your Rub with Love Father's Day gifts wherever you are looking for them. Online, in the grocery store, Bartels has them, you name it, uh, Thriftway stores like uh, Lake Ballinger, Vashon Bayview, all three locations of Wajamaya, or stop by and visit our friend Desiree at Seattle Fish Guys on 23rd Avenue South. Uh, Pamela? Tom? How do we play this game? Well, I've got how a... do we make sure that I win? <laughs> I've got five questions for each of the three contestants, and I'm so proud to have one of our favorite listeners, Jim, in the audience as a contestant today. Yay! Thank you. Against Andy and Tom. You know, Snaka had to run away because he I was know. scared. He was scared. He was shaking. <laughs> shaking in his boots. Uh, let's start with uh, Annie Elmore, please. All right. Number one, please describe the shape of Cavatappi pasta. Ooh, we got her. Uh, <laughs> we got her. Is it looks very similar you to, to macaroni? Okay. <laughs> I said stop whining. Uh, Cavatappi is a corkscrew. Corkscrew. So oh. that was, I gave you a little clue. corkscrew spiral. I, clue. I thought you were yelling at me. No. <laughs> I was giving you a clue because I'm a nice man. Number two, if you are out of cornstarch, what? Could you substitute? Tapioca. Yes. Anything else? Arrowroot. Yeah. Uh, you got that one. Oh, um, Zampone. A specialty of Modena, Italy, is a unique pork sausage dish. Is, is it served in its casing or in a pig's foot? Ooh, that's a trick question. Foot. Exactly. Correct. Yay! Please, <laughs> please describe the oh, yeah. shape of the uh, timbale mold. Uh, what do you mean? The shape of the pan. It's round. Yeah. <laughs> Looks like a bowl. There you go. It's like a half round ball. 
Okay. Yeah, we'll take it. Yeah, like a musical nice instrument, like a like a <laughs> like drum, like a big night, like like That's a drum. That's the big dish, right? High sided, drum shaped, tapered at the bottom, closed end, and yes. then open. I think we're giving you uh, a yes. <laughs> <laughs> I actually made that before. I know you for made the it big for... night dinner. Yeah, we want to do it again. Is we... that is that the symbolic? Is yeah, actually, and we have all those pans, so yeah. we've got to make it again because yeah, we love eating it too. <laughs> uh, please describe the Italian soup ribolita. Oh God, was Bridget when I need her? I'm uh, standing right here. You can ask me. Oh, you gonna give me the answer then? No, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you see how it is? Brothy soup. <laughs> <laughs> Bread, bean, and kale. Bread, bean, and... So there is broth in there. Yes, there is yeah. broth. <laughs> 0.5. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh yes. God. Typically minestrone style with chunks of garlic grilled bread and often uh, an addition of white beans, kale, and Parmesan. Yum. Yum. We need to eat oh, that. Oh, yeah. Jim, you ready to go up against these two knuckleheads? <laughs> I'm trembling. <laughs> I can see that. If you are out of ketchup, what can you substitute? Barbecue sauce. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Winner, winner, chicken dinner right there. <laughs> I, th- I think we'll take it. The... Uh, Substitution guide of the Food Lovers Journal said a mix of tomato sauce, sugar, and vinegar to get as close to ketchup as possible. Okay, that makes sense. Point five. Describe the <laughs> pasta shape of uh, manicotti. Manicotti. Uh, big tubes of Yes, pasta. exactly correct. What does the Italian word zucchero mean? Sweet. <laughs> Close. What's the product that would make it Oh, sweet? sugar. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, the British specialty, Scotch woodcock, is toast spread with anchovy paste and topped with softly scrambled eggs and cream. Is it served as a first course or an entree? I'd say it's probably an entree. It can be both. <laughs> Point five. Point five. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, in Samuel Johnson's, I was going deep. Yes, you were. 1755 Dictionary of the English Language, he said, Oats were a grain which in England is generally given to horses, but which in Scotland supports the people. Do horses and humans eat the same form of oats? Well, the horses don't eat it as porridge, and the humans do cook it, so... We eat it differently. Yes. <laughs> We're but giving is it the you the same. I took it as is it the same oat. It's the same oat. Oh, it's the same oat. Um, there is less processing in the way they feed it to the animals. Ours is usually hulled, uh, cleaned, and toasted. So, you're tied with Annie Elmore right now. Tom Douglas, wow. for the win. Describe the pasta shape gemelli. Oh, that's an easy one. <laughs> it's like Kavatavi, but gentler. No. It's uh, the two short strands twisted together. So there is some twisting. <laughs> uh, okay. Half a point. No, 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 that's okay. I'm a big guy. Quarter point. Quarter <laughs> point. If you are out of yogurt, what could you substitute? Sour cream. 
Mm, you could, but what would get you closer you said, to what yogurt? What was the question? What could you substitute? Yeah. I, I could substitute. You just said I could. <laughs> okay. I was looking Cottage for... Cottage cheese, what do you want? Uh, buttermilk milk. or milk yeah. that you've put some lemon in to get that tang. I see what you're saying. Boy. The, <laughs> the German blood sausage, Zugenwurst, is a blood sausage with an exotic addition. Is it burdock root or pickled tongue? Tongue. Correct. Where is the cut of meat known as the saddle located? The rib cage. <laughs> that is, that's what it is. It is? Yeah. It is the unseparated line from the rib to the leg from both sides of the animals. Do we give them like quarter point? Quarter. Or, what are you yeah. talking? Maybe a third. <laughs> it's the rib cage. <laughs> he got part of it right. He got part of it right. Point three. <laughs> and finally, how is agar agar used? As a gel, the thickener. Yes. But it also doesn't have to be used that way. Like for example, the seaweed salad you buy at Mutual Fish is kelp, and then they make ribbons out of the agar agar. Uh, to supplement kelp, so. Okay, but you still didn't win. Eddie <laughs> <laughs> and Jim, thank you. Nice job, you guys. Bye. Nice job. I'll have to wait for next week to crush Miss Elmore. <laughs> if you want to be part of the show, you can view the taping on YouTube live or reserve a space here in the audience at hotstovesociety.com. You're listening to us on Cairo Radio. The show is produced by Pamela Hinckley, Sean McFadden, and our editor is Sean Nocomi Dottore. Also remember, if you missed any episode of our Hot Stove Society show on Cairo, you can listen via podcast. Just subscribe with your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Yay!